Hi everyone, this is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of the Control System Cybersecurity Association International, or as we call it, just CSE. CSE is a 501c6 nonprofit workforce development association dedicated to helping grow, support, and sustain the professionals charged with the cybersecurity of control systems. We're specifically talking about those systems that have pumps and valves and actuators, real cyber to physical moving parts, and control nearly every aspect of our modern connected industries. Thank you for tuning into the podcast. It is my hope you find it inspirational or motivating or revealing or informative, and perhaps at times even a little entertaining. Take care and be well. Hi, this is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of CSA and the host of the CSA podcast show. And I've got another great guest here, a long, long time contributor to the, to the industry. Uh, some of you will know him and some of you might not yet, but he's been doing a lot for, for quite a few years. And we'll get into it. But I've got Juan Fabella. He's currently the field CTO at Zona. He is a industrial security champion for sure, but he's a military veteran, a technologist. He's a founder. He's a father, husband, goat herder, gamer, astronomy enthusiast, and a lover of anything space, to be honest. An all-around uh, interesting uh, individual and great person to have on the show. Long overdue, Ron. Welcome. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, Ron, let's do the backstory. All superheroes and, oh, you know, man. I, my position is cybersecurity, but we're a form of superhero in the modern age. They have a backstory. You had to come from somewhere. Where where'd you come from? Oh, it all started when I touched this glowing rock. Uh, no, no, it, <laughs> that would be amazing, right? Uh, no, I, you know, I grew up from kind of humble, poor beginnings. I was at, you know, so fun things and, and things you can use to reset my password uh, on when prompting, you know, born in California, raised in New Jersey. So I got, you know, really not sure where I came from there. Uh, but I grew up in New Jersey, didn't really have computers as a kid. But when I went into the Air Force, I had access to a lot of things. But yeah, you know, now I'm in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We got used to just bouncing around, you know, military guy. You get used to moving every year and a half, two years. But when we got to Tennessee and Chattanooga, my wife said, hey, you better like it here because we've moved too much. So make this work. And luckily, it's nice. Uh, you know, it's a little further south. We got great Internet, great climate. You know, I got goats, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. And now it's uh you know, I, I feel privileged and blessed to be in the industrial control system community. Um, and as we'll talk, you know, even from some of the beginnings, it was a smaller community. Now it's larger. And, you know, there's growing pains and excitement there. But, yeah, no, that's that's uh, that's where I came from. You know, kind of curious about computers, curious about how things worked, I think, like most of us. And then it was really down to just opportunity and application. Yeah, I was going to ask you that, as I, I often do, you know, what role technology or computers played, you know, prior to prior to, you know, leaving, you know, graduating high school and leaving and going on your oh, own. Man. I had I had friends that had, uh, you know, this is back in the doom days, dial up, you know, where you're sharing files. And uh, I had a friend that was war driving at night, like dialing numbers, war dialing. Um, oh, yeah. And it was always fascinating, but I was I was like removed from it because I didn't have my own geeky stuff to play with. So I was always adjacent. Yeah. yeah you know, that's similar to me. I, I had friends who who crossed the line dialing to bulletin board systems, often in California from the Midwest to get to download pirated games. And mm -hmm. I did have I did have some games that came via those channels, but I didn't do the war dialing and the you know the, the modem couplers. I mean all that stuff back at 300 baud. And yep. I remember that there was there was unfortunately a sort of um there was a dust up with uh, with the authorities, and some of my friends got rounded <laughs> up. But one guy had left his his you know he had been dialed into a California BBS for over over 24 hours on yeah. someone else's time, and uh, <laughs> like yeah, kind of got. 
I always seem to miss when my friends got arrested for shenanigans. So maybe I'm just, you know, I squeaked by, <laughs> got lucky. So, well, it's, yeah. the, it's the magic stone you said earlier that you just built. Right. <laughs> um, so, okay. So what's, uh, what's, you graduated high school and what are your options? What do you choose to do? Is there, oh, you know, is it, well, you, you had mentioned the astronomy astrophysics thing and I, I really wanted to go into astrophysics. Like I was all set. I was going to, I, I really not not that I was I wanted to go to Princeton. I lived in New Jersey, right? That was the thing. But then as I got older, maybe I, I was much too practical before my years. I said, you know what? I don't want to be a professor though, an associate pro like and I looked at the time length and like what I would have to do. It's not like you just get out four years, you go work for NASA, right? That's what like 15-year-old Ron thought. But then 16-year-old Ron looked at it and went, This isn't gonna work. I'm gonna get out of school, hundred grand in debt. And all I have in front of me is more school. And so I kind of had a panic moment in my senior year. I went, oh, crap, what am I going to do? Computers are cool. I should just go into the Air Force for computers then. And that's that's what I did. But yeah, you know, high school, I was on that trajectory of, oh, I'm going to do space stuff. And then it all fell apart, <laughs> to be honest. So you, you joined and went right into to, to computers. And shortly thereafter, if I remember right, security, you know, became yeah. part of what you did. But that is before all these amazing military programs that exist today yeah i mean uh, it was uh 1998 it was just information security uh, we, yeah. we were computer operators right and that could mean you're fixing printers picking up phones you know communications at that yeah. at that stage but in the 2000s it started to evolve that's where the air force started to have specific cyber programs but it was all information security at that point point. and i started i think like everyone does uh you know we kind of deride compliance but i started as you know compliance so it was called ditzcap diacap now it's called fisma uh in the federal government and i got to do some hackery stuff but that's you know compliance is what you know kept us all employed at that point even in the air force so uh, that's where I started, uh, four years at the Pentagon, and then got to go to the real Air Force, as my tech sergeant would tell me. Did a did a deployment, and you know what? It was just like, wow, what am I doing? All this computer stuff, living in D.C. So I eventually got out and just continued on. So I think you know we we have a very broad spectrum of listeners, but we know some mm -hmm. of them are, are are younger or earlier stage decision making. That you did this again, like I said, this is twenty. If I'm getting it right, twenty five years ago or whatever. Mm -hmm. But but it was a huge fast start. I, I'm I just knowing my with my own military background, the amount of responsibility, exposure, things you got, and now that's more viable than ever. There's these amazing programs and Space Force. So somebody's sort of wondering, how do I break in the industry? We get this question all the time. And right. maybe when you have a couple years job experience, that doesn't disqualify you from then saying, I don't like what I do. I'd like to get into the cybersecurity. This is a viable way. Go do right. one of these programs. You're going to get a ton of training. You'll owe three, four, five, six years, something like that, depending on what training you accept. But to come out, I mean, what was that experience for? How much did you gain in just that, just that, you know, that time period? It was, uh, it was interesting, right? Because you're, like you said, you're thrown into the to the mix, right? And so for computers, like like with anything, it's just here's the mission, here's your group, go go execute. And that type of experience was invaluable because not only did I learn a lot, I learned a lot of what not to do. And what I tell people, especially with the military or any large organization, whether it's uh, military or non-military organizations, I learned how to work in and potentially manipulate a very large organizational process, which regardless if I was doing security or not, the project side, the challenges in, in speaking to uh, leadership, like I learned that at an early age at 18, 
you know, 18, 19 years old. So you kind of say with military guys, you have to mature quickly and you do, right? And there's still some immature things I do. Like I still play a lot of video games and, you know, but, um, but that part was invaluable because then I felt like I could be put into any organization and just pick up whatever it is that they were executing, right? Because I knew how to work in those large processes. Um, and military is not for everyone, right? But, you know, find something, even if you're in college, you know, be a part of an organization, you know, do IT support for your college network, uh, go intern or, or volunteer at a nonprofit. Uh, when you do these things and you have to keep networks and systems running and, and living, all of a sudden you have a new appreciation when you come over to the security side. Yeah. So before we move on to your, your post-military, any, any memory from that time period, anything that stands out, anything that sort of even today affects you or you're like, yep, that was the moment. Anything like that? So my first job at Air Force Pentagon comms agency was compliance. Um, you're going to laugh though. We had rules and regulations for password complexity. And so one ways to check that would be to crack the passwords. But process-wise, they would just, we had like a dozen or so agencies under us. Every month they would send us their SAM file, like from their systems. And then we would crack them to ensure compliance. It's just wild to think about that right now. They were just sending those an email, like just here's our here's our password. Right? But that's the way it was done. This was 98, 99. But my very first hacking job, that wasn't even really that. We had to use Loftcrack, which was a standard password cracking tool at the time. But the Air Force didn't, I mean, it wasn't very modern. Um, they didn't know how to acquire that. Like, how do you buy that in an Air Force process? So one of my first jobs was keygen cracking, loft crack, so I could use it and do my job. That experience, because you know, I was kind of put into that situation, then that got the hacker mindset going. It's like, oh, well, you know, not only am I password cracking, like why am I doing this, but I'm having to hack tools in order to get my job done. And that kind of continued on through the Air Force and, and even uh, as my life as like a pen tester. So that was fun. You know, 99, I didn't know what I was doing. I'm, I'm reading stuff online and I'm having to crack a password cracker so I could use it. <laughs> so anything, uh, this is always maybe an opportune moment, anything that you would now tell yourself if you're sitting across the table from your then self, anything you now, any advice you'd give yourself? Wow. Time management was always uh, like focus on being structured about what you're learning, what you're reading, and then what you're trying out. Because I, I follow that process a lot. I read every day. I look at manuals. I listen to podcasts. I do whatever. And, and then you want to pick something to go execute. I was just all over the place, just ADHD squirrel. You know, one day I was doing this, one day I was doing that. And when you're young, especially in your career, what it feels like is you go, wow, I never really made progress on any one thing, right? I got the 20% on a hundred things instead of a hundred percent on like three mm. or four. So that that's what I would tell myself because early on, don't discount the type of exposure to systems that you have, right? Like in the military, I had access to networks and devices that I, I don't have access to now, right? So don't squander that, that opportunity. Okay. Yeah. Good, good, good advice. You know, I don't know how you want to break it down. You've been at mm -hmm. a number of, in, you know, interesting companies that mm -hmm. everybody will recognize, you know, Lucky Martin, Booz Allen, Alert Enterprise, Lockheed again, Lidos, Dragos, and, and, and more, you know, more to come in, in, in Zona today. Mm -hmm. So what would you, how do you characterize, you know, that journey? And are there particular steps along that journey that you think are, were, were soon hugely formative to, you know, to who you are today or, or were more powerful than others? Good, bad, or indifferent. I mean, I think, you know, we learn from, you know, like you said, you learn from things not to do too sometimes, but, <laughs> you know, what you, you jumped down and went, to, you know, obviously mm -hmm. the military to Lockheed Martin, a, a well-known, a large industrial or, a, you know, mi military um, 
like a mm -hmm. military industry, you know, uh, company. Um, what did you, what were you doing there first? You know, it was, uh, it seemed like the natural progression, right? Get out as an enlisted guy doing a job for the military, then you go become a contractor doing the same job for the military. <laughs> like, but what I learned Any through that process change? Not really. Um, yeah. You know, it's weird. I mean, the joke is, you know, you get out as an E4, E5, and you triple your salary just doing the same exact thing. Um, you know, so, but that was part of the reason why the military was important for me was not only did I have the experience, I had the clearance and I had the, the program knowledge so I could just fit in program. So I, you know, I started working missile defense. What I, what I learned though throughout and my takeaway was almost everything is a services or a customer facing interaction. At least for me, it started to become that. So whether it was actual consulting or even in the military, you know, I, I had customers, I had people that I had to serve, literally serve. And so once I got into that mindset of, oh, I'm just here to serve others, it made everything a lot easier to adapt to, right? So everything I tried to approach, even if I didn't know what I was doing, was in this, hey, I'm here to help you with something. If I can't do it, then maybe I'll find someone who can, or maybe I'll learn it or I'll investigate. But that's really what I learned, especially in, in the first part of my career was 100% consulting, right? Uh, whether it was with Lockheed or, or anyone else, it was serving other programs and then the people in those programs. And I think that was in a huge part of my formative years because even when I got into product companies like, you know, Dragos and, and even now at Zona, I kept that going with me. And I think for our viewers and listeners and in industrial, you'll feel the same way where you are serving not a greater good. It's not really a military mission, but there is a mission that's other than ARR or uptime on email, sir. You know, like it's just something yeah. tangible. And so there's a service component of that, even if you're, you're not in the military or not working for a utility. So. Um, that has carried through from my early, you know, kind of career. That theme has come up before. There are a lot of former military folks in this, you know, in our in our ecosystem. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're right. Even if you never served, you still that now you are a part of that that mission, that mm -hmm. mission oriented feeling. And, and and I think there's a lot of truth to that. And that that a lot of people feel that way. Mm -hmm. um, we're doing something important that you know that that matters. Industrial control systems, early exposure, and where in that change did that begin? This one, I I don't think I'll get in trouble for do, doing this one, but I, you know, I was in Lockheed. I was doing the same compliance, DITSCAP die, CAPA for missile missile defense, missile warning, right? So weapon systems. Um, oh, within Lockheed, a system of some consequence. It, it, oh, of course, right? Yeah, you know, it's, it's shooting up it wild right whatever you think of the mda program you know you're shooting a missile to shoot down a missile like it was just it was wild right um so that piqued my curiosity and, and to be honest i got I, it wasn't really fulfilling to try to secure a system that was in cheyenne mountain you're just like oh it's literally in a mountain like what kind of you know effect am i going to have on this as an individual so i started to look within the lockheed community of practitioners which what they're really good with and i saw um it, you may be familiar with him. Dr. Eric Cole had put out this request. He was a fellow there. So he had some like really cool title at Lockheed for a time. And he said, hey, does anyone have experience with NERC SIP in nuclear power generation? And I went, you know, all right, let's Google. Let's check out what that is. All right, NERC SIP is compliance framework. It has controls. This is all very familiar to me. Uh, I know what nuclear power generation. Even then I was like, wait, these two things don't apply to each other. And so a little bit of social engineering, I wrote up a slide deck that said, this is how you apply NERC SIP V3 to nuclear power generation, maybe 12 slides. You know, I read through the controls and I had a slide at the end that was like, hey, you know, this doesn't really apply. 
I sent it to Dr. Eric Cole. Now I didn't lie. I said, hey, I've never done this professionally, but here's the research that I've done. And he said, you're, you're hired for this program. And what the scary thing is, the other thing I've learned, uh, whether it's Lockheed or any other organization, um, never assume that you're not, let me see, there's too many negatives there. It was always difficult thinking that you were the first one to have thought of something in a large organization like that with so many smart people. But apparently in this organization, I was the first person who piped up and said, I know what NERCSIP is and I've read it. And so that that was my journey into industrial control. It was a weird NERCSIP assessment for nuclear power gen. It was, it was just wild. Um, and I never looked back. After I did that, then I was like, I'm sold. This is great. This is exciting. And so within Lockheed, I sought out programs to, to deal on what they call their commercial cyber uh, services. Awesome. And so it, or, it's something having to do with control systems ever since? Yeah. Yeah. Ever since, um, you know, I, I moved over and then, of course, it's more consulting. It's more external consulting, but utilities, oil and gas, manufacturing, like everyone, anyone that we could get to buy our gap analysis, risk assessment, penetration testing, uh, we went after. And interesting, it was unusual for Lockheed to have a commercial services arm. So uh, we were always the black sheep or just kind of the odd man out, uh, even within Lockheed. Yeah. yeah. It's funny you mentioned uh, Dr. Eric Cole. He's episode number five. Where we're, you, you, you are looking like you might be episode 105. Um, <laughs> and so he is episode number five of this series. You know, back during COVID, I'm like, you know what, maybe I should just start calling some people I know and chatting with them. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where this all started. So it's, yeah, it's such a small world. Yeah. Okay. So let's, you know, Lockheed, uh, you left Lockheed, you came back to Lockheed, you did, you did yeah. a couple stops along the way. What, what was that? You know, what was that about? I, um, consulting is difficult, especially if you're a pen tester or your assessor, because you feel like you're telling people the same thing over and over. So Hey, I run a Nessus report, I'm doing a pen test, whatever the case may be, and you're saying, hey, patch your systems, look at your firewalls, change your passwords, and it becomes monotonous. And so I dipped my toe into the product side uh, with Alert Enterprise, and I learned a lot. And then I, I think I was a little young, maybe a little naive into like how the product side of the house worked as opposed to services. And I kind of ran back to services. <laughs> I was like, no, let me, you know, there's still more to give out there. And that's where I, I earned a lot of my hard hats was in that second round with Lockheed, just going all over the place uh, for process control networks. Uh, whenever someone asks or, or discusses uh, active scanning in, in industrial and they throw their hands up, I'm like, no, I was the guy doing it. And because I was the guy doing it, I know why I, I encourage or discourage, like never do this. It's just, it's not that it's dangerous, it's that it's just soul crushing because in order to do it safely, it's just, it's so slow and so monotonous. And, uh, but no, I, I went back and, um, but you know, and I think for a lot of the consultants, especially the road warriors out there, you kind of go on these cycles of like 18 months, 24 months where you're just burning on the run. And then you're like, oh, I need a break. <laughs> right. Yeah. And um, so I, I think because you brought it up, um, <laughs> I want to, I want to, go back to that topic just for a minute this concept of active interrogation of endpoints and scanning Ooh, yeah after technology environment you're right there on the the vanguard of where it started to happen and where it you know it caused issues yeah. right and, and 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 today we've inherited a, a mix now there's vendors saying hey we we can turn that off in our product mm -hmm. or our product can do it here it's safe to do but i mean they're creeping towards towards Either we're passive or we're passive, but we're capable of being left, you know, being active. 
You know, mm-hmm. what, what's your whole vision on that? Are we are we going to see more active uh, allowed? Um, is, it, is it because it's engineered properly or it's set up properly or the systems and networks that it's being done on are more modern and more resilient and can handle it? But in, when I got first exposed to them, Mike Asante recruited me to take a look, you know, at doing a company together in this space, 2010. It was mm-hmm. a huge no-no still. Absolutely no, nothing active. And that's about the time that we were out there doing active, but it, it was it was manual. I think there everything you said plays into it, right? There's there, there's the advancement in network stacks and networking in general. The network modernization has been huge, so we're not encountering those war stories of this is an unmanaged dumb hub from Best Buy and we you know we blasted the network. I think TCP stacks on devices are getting more modern, so they're able to handle the asynchronous you know kind of scanning and this and that. Um, I think awareness is better, but the overall thing, the reason why everyone's so iffy on it is the idea that it's automated or that it's broad. And so when we were doing scanning, it was, uh, and I described to people, if they're not on the operation side, the concept of three-part communication, which you, you probably know and understand. But like, you know, if I said, hey, Derek, um, I'm going to scan this device on IP 10.10.1.1, then you would tell me, okay, Ron, you can scan 10.10.1.1. And then I would on the third part say, okay, Derek, I am now... Like just hearing me say that for one system right now, you're already bored, right? Well, that is the tedious. That's what you were referencing earlier. And we did that for hundreds of yeah. systems across, you know, tens or dozens of, of facilities and sites. Because the, the, that was the only- opposite of we're flipping a switch and all this stuff's going to happen and all these endpoints. Right? That you just yeah. you just described the tedious nature of how it's how it was done in a very methodical manual way. And it was the only way you could convince or prove to the operator that not only did you care about the safety and reliability of their system, but that you were going to go through this process to ensure that instead of just throwing a slash 24 into Nmap or Nessus and letting it go, right? And I think that's the 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 person and operator in the loop, the ability for them at any point to say stop work. We always had stop work authority, right, from a safety perspective. But we carried that into our cybersecurity and our scanning, our assessments, where at any point we could say stop. And it's not like we had just blasted 100 different devices. And so I think if we carry that forward to this debate on active versus passive, that's the part everyone gets scared of. Can I misconfigure a scanner and now it's going to blast the entire slash eight, every single device that it has routes to? Or is there more a methodical or intentional process? And I think, yes, I mean, and we can't take for granted what industrial OEMs have been doing for decades anyway. They have systems that pull and and bring status back. Um, So it's just doing that in a way that proves that we consider the safety and reliability of the system, which is why, again, as a person, human on a laptop, that was just excruciating, but that was the only safe way to do it. And, you know, in the 2010s, because yeah. you did encounter those systems where one bad Nmap scan and now the process is down and, and that was unacceptable. Yeah. So you created, you're one of the people that created the the, the antibodies that form as soon as... Or were the people that... Um, you know, because consultants in the early, in the late 2000s, early 2010s, that's where you hear those stories is, oh, yeah. we had some guy from Lockheed come in and he ran NMAP and our process shut down, right? So we're both to blame, but, yeah. <laughs> but you know, on, on, on the team I was on, the team I ran, that in every rules of engagement, that's what we started with is zero impact to operations. So everything we do. And just having that as your first mantra was 
huge and what I found out later was unique in the industry. You had others, you know, like Lofty Perch and and some of these other guys, like, you know, some of the known, like uh, in, the In Guardian guides, you know, where they had that exposure. But if you just got off the shelf people from IT, that's where the war stories came from, right? Yeah. Makes, that makes sense. So let's talk about, you know, the most important company in entity activity in your whole biography. You know, that's uh, this binary brew works. I mean, what's what's going on there? <laughs> oh, man, I, I almost feel bad. So, um, wow, how did I start? This is maybe a long story. I'll try to break it up. So um, my, my wife loves me very much. And she said, Ron, you need a hobby that's not based in computers, right? You, you work, then you game. <laughs> And then you work again, like you need something else. And so I think it was now, around computers mm-hmm. and some sort of industrial equipment is still going to come to play in this story. It, it does because we over engineered it. It was great. Um, but no, so she got me one of those like uh, learn how to brew at the local place. And it yeah. was you know, it was cute. And you had your bucket of beer. And then uh, and then I went to uh, brewing on the stovetop. And, and then uh, and then it just kept growing and growing. And then what I realized when I moved to Tennessee uh, uh, myself and Stephen Hilt were were brewing a lot, and we'd go to the same conferences. We'd go to S4, and everyone loves the guy who brings free beer, right? So, fun fact: uh, the first uh, craft beer bash that Dale did was on his penthouse. He he did like a um a party before the conference for the speakers, and Stephen and I served beer as Brian Airy Brewers at that party. So we inspired the current craft beer bash. But Dale did an important thing. Um, he said, "Ron, I would love to pay you for this." And I said, well, I'm not licensed. I'm not like you technically can't. Right. And because I'm such a process or compliance oriented, I looked into what it would take. And honestly, it wasn't a lot. <laughs> you have to have a place to brew at. But basically, that was it. So I went and got registered like I was a real like commercial brewery there for a hot minute and uh, distributed for like a few months and then realized, oh, my God, I'm never going to be able to do both you know, industrial consulting and this. Yeah. And so it just became a garage hobby thing. Right. So. so- Still going, still do it today. The garage needs to be cleaned out, but yeah, you know, that's uh, it. I go in fits and spurts, right? You know, the last big focus was bringing the brewery up to Drago's headquarters, right? And building that out. And Tom Van Norman at the time was there and he did all of the the control systems and the over engineering part of it. And I did the yeah. brewing and the and the and the knowledge transfer and and that's how they, they have their, their brewery up there. So but really ever since then it's been tough to keep it in the garage because the weird thing is I don't drink a lot of beer. So you're you making know, a product that you don't end up consuming that much of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now what I liked about that and what you're finding is that I'm not hyperactive, but you know, I bounce around and everything. Uh, brewing beer like baking bread or some of these other processes, you can't rush it. And so for me it was almost like meditative, right? You have to boil it for an hour. You can't, you know, make it, you know, boil it in 30 minutes. So I enjoyed the process of and the interaction of the brewing yeah. process, even if I don't drink a lot of beer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I I have uh, you know a couple of passions, and you know the, the one people probably identify the most with me is scuba diving. I teach scuba yeah. diving. And they're like, how do you have time to do that? I'm like, how do I not have time to do it? It's totally different than what I do. I've got to do it. I've got yeah. to have this other thing that's more physical. It's you know working with people and. It's so different than what I normally do, and I need it, you know. So it's, it's I, it sort of conjured up in my head as I heard you talk. You know, I think that's there's real value in that. I mean, that's something, you know. I think not to not to belabor the point, but I think for some listeners who might be in a tunnel doing a thing, 
all-consuming. There's great value. I found that the rest of my life, my professional life, my family life has benefited by having a, some people call it a hobby. I, I think it's more than that. Mm-hmm. It's like a, a passion, you know, a side passion. Everything benefits from that. It's not a waste of time or a deviation from like, just do go all in on the one thing. It's, it's for human beings, that's maybe not the right, you know, for most of us, not the right thing to do to be 100% with one thing. Right. You know, you burn out and um, yeah, uh, we called it my zombie apocalypse skill, right? Like, you know, like I, I feel like as a person, I have something to add, you know, when you can't hack systems or provide consulting on cyber or whatever, like, well, I can turn grain and water into alcohol and trade it for stuff. Like, you know, so that was always the joke, right? But even with scuba diving, you've probably seen too, like that that's a process, it's intentional, you can't yeah. rush certain things, you have yeah. to be mindful and in the moment of your environment. And it, it just really is meditative no matter what it is, right? Absolutely, yeah. everything you just said. Yep, for for sure. All right, so talk a little bit about sort of today. You're you're doing multiple things. Um, I know you. Yeah. I you know I know in the context of Zona, you're you're doing a lot there, but you've got your fingers touching some other stuff as well. I try to you know um, Patrick Miller at Ampere. You know I, I've kept in contact, and it's funny how uh, he's collected a lot of folks who are just keeping at arm's length to helping him out in every, any way possible, which is a testament to his, you know, reputation in the community. But no, my focus is at Zona. You know, here I am in a in another ICS security startup, but this one's different. What was exciting for me is that in detection, which I love detection, and I'm really passionate about visibility and everything else, but I always felt like that we were just revealing more problems for, for folks to go solve. <laughs> which is a vital thing. At Zona, the reason why I like this is I feel like we're just solving one problem. So I feel like, again, back to that, I'm I'm here to help people. I actually feel like I'm helping people. Same challenges, right? You have to sell product, you have to prove value. You know, the industry's weird right now with that. And But it's nice to still be in the industrial space and not feel like I'm having to chase every latest, oh, here's what happened in Ukraine and here's our take on it, right? Like, it's just, no, no, no. We're here to provide this... Uh, it's secure access, right? But it's just like, we have a thing that does a thing and and here you go, how can we help you operationally? Now the field CTO I'm finding is a, is a useful catch-all phrase for, well, we're just gonna have anything that we need you to do, Ron, you're gonna go do, which I actually really yeah. enjoy. And what I enjoy about that is I get to still interact and work with the community members, right? I'm not just in a I, vacuum. I title it at, at, a, at, a, at a more than multiple companies. Does it mean different, can it, is it malleable enough that it means different things or are there something sort of common to that? Because I think that's something you could shed a little light on that, that idea of field CTO. I've seen it yeah. in other places. And I, if I'm not fully cognizant of all that field CTOs may do, that might be something you could you could shed a little light on. I think the, the field like a designator is really you know hey you're you're still an individual contributor at a strategic level and you're customer facing or outward facing you know in cto roles i've had in the past or other ctos they're more inward right they're looking at the community the industry for trends and of course how to serve the customer and the market's needs but they're the real customer is inward right and so for field, at least my understanding, and I had to Google it too to see what the community or the industry thinks a field CTO is. But for me, it's about keeping a pulse and serving the community and having to still handle the business unit type things in a company, you know, sales, marketing, support, product development, all those things. But you're doing it with a lens of this is what I'm advocating 
for on behalf of the community um, okay. or, or your customers, right? Yeah. Are you I on like the road people, a lot? Yeah, which I really enjoy. Uh, you know, October and November is killer for conferences. So yeah. I mean, you know that. I mean, you. <laughs> I saw you in a couple of different places. <laughs> yeah. But in my in my role, I still need. I still am able to interact with customers at their facilities, both you know, pre-sales, customer support, implementation. And so I am on the road quite a bit. Um, it's been in balance with conferences, but now I'm about to go back on the road to, to go serve the community, right? Which is what I really love. And so that's a nice give and take, right? Because you're not just seeing the same Marriott in the same conference room every time. I get to go out and pretend like I'm an engineer and go out to power plants and oil refineries and stuff and and see the business end of, of our of our industry. Oh gosh, so there's, I feel like you know we're nearing our time, and I've got like mm-hmm. threads I want to pull. So quickly, <laughs> one of them is you mentioned Patrick Miller, another fellow, and thank you for becoming one of our recent CSA fellows. He he's episode number thirty five in the podcast series. <laughs> so you know it's like you guys all touch, you know, draw lines to each other. So it's like, hey, you can go go pick up that person's story too. Yeah. So um, so you talk about you going out and, and all the sort of the travel, seeing different things. You've been all these different companies. Give a grade. Where are we? You got you got as long, you know. There's there's few of you that can say control system cybersecurity for a couple of decades. Right. That's a pretty small group and you all know each other really really well i've been sort of part of this ecosystem now for 13 years and i feel like an interloper you know you guys you guys they go back 20 years it's just not that many of you have we arrived like yeah control systems are finally safe and secure or is it an f oh, like oh my god no i mean we're well, you know, where, where are we? well back to what you said about the interloper i i have found the most genuine folks like yourself or patrick or anyone else is they continue to feel like they're the interlopers. Like we continue to reference the shoulders of giants that we stood on. Like you mentioned, Mike Asante, you mentioned like, you know, all these folks where you go, yeah, there was a vanguard before us. And I think that's where we're at now. We're at that level of maturity to where we're like the second or third cycle in, right? Before it was fighting for a seat at the table. And now, you know, and then maybe even a decade ago, now we had a seat at the table, but we didn't really know what to do or how to influence or how to speak to uh, government, whatever. Now government is uh, maybe to our chagrin telling us, hey, we've heard you. You've been at the big boy table for a long time now. Here's legislation to go do that thing. And we're going, whoa, 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 no, wait. Like, <laughs> you know, so we've evolved and and where, where we're at, I mean, I don't think we're, it may be good for for the industry from a job security side. I don't think we'll ever be 100% secure. Right. It's almost like, you know, my, my dad was a, a garbage man. There's always going to be garbage, right? There's always going to be. But I think we're second or third cycle in, almost second, third generation in of a community to where now we can mentor them and they're not starting from zero or even negative, right? And so now it's about using the opportunity we have to affect real change, Right. So if something happens in Ukraine, you know, or you know, I, I can't, I'll say Stuxnet, now everyone has to drink at home. But, you know, we had these milestone events. People mentioned Stuxnet, but then there was a group of us that always mentioned Aurora, right? Yeah. And then before that, there was always a group. So you just keep going back. Now we have these these events and we need to be able to use them not to convince people that we should be heard, but to convince people that they should take action in a way that that is meaningful. I think that's where I'm seeing the shift. There's a lot more community interest. And the good news is, is that if you're starting out now, you're not starting from scratch. There's a wealth of knowledge. And the one thing I love about our industry, and you're doing this service as well, is that the knowledge base and the access to people who have done it before, I mean, we didn't have that 15, 20 years ago. (laughs) 
we were all just kind of floundering around, you know, 40 guys at, at S4 in a conference room going, oh, this is cool, right? You know, so that's where I see the industry now is we're in that transformative phase to where we can actually go do good for our industry and, and actually serve them because we have the tools, the resources, the awareness. So now let's not squander it, right? That's been my big thing. Let's not, let's not mess it up. Yeah. Well, you mentioned S4 and Dale. Episode 34 and 65 are, are, are with Dale. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, you know, and, and you have these folks like like Dale and others where, um, you know, they were doing it before it was cool. And now, you know, people just gravitate towards them. And, and, and yeah. again, he's really using it as a community service. Of course, you know, we all have to pay the bills, et cetera. But, um, man, S4 has been that thing that has anchored us yeah and i didn't know the full fully how it had evolved till i in in that episode that he um the 34th episode of the series mm -hmm. he he told the story of how s4 came to be and yeah. um yeah it was early on and there weren't that many people that can go back as far as like there's just 40 of us in a room but that's that's yeah. where that that's where that thing you know that sort of thing begins right where any sort of thing mm -hmm. begins, oftentimes with a nucleus and then and then you know if it's lucky it grows from there and and uh, in, in his case, and in, in, in S4's case, it did. But uh, not, not a lot of people go back to the 40 people in the room, the room <laughs> stage. That's, that definitely predates me. Well, and, um, and you can, you probably appreciate this too, but, you know, sticking with it, the early days of what you've done here were probably rough. You're just like, oh, you know, I, I you, you friends and friends and family, not a lot of people join the, the, the streams or not any people, but you stick with it, right? And all of a sudden it becomes this momentum that, you know, I mean, Dale could have very easily gave up, right? And where would we be as an industry? You could have given up. Where would we be as an industry? And so I think that's a good takeaway for everyone is when you feel, and that's a difference, you should never feel alone in our industry now, right? Yeah. yeah. And and so to stick with what you have, it's going to take time. We're a little slow in industrial, but in three, five, 10 years, it's going to have this amazing impact. So just stick with it and and uh, and don't fail alone. Find others to come with you on your journey. Well, I think that's great advice, and and um, and maybe that's that's the we go out in style here. That's expert advice. <laughs> Love it. Stick with it, whatever that is, right? It could be doing something that everybody benefits from, or it could be right down to your own your own uh, where you want to be in five years. Then start right. building towards it and stick with it. Um, right. But there's there's a lot to be said that, and a lot of people do. I mean, you can look at just even outside our industry, human nature. They do give up for right before the results that maybe they were hoping for or wanted to see. And and you're right, CSA was a handful of meetings eight, you know, eight years ago. They were fun, but they were ad hoc. They were here or there. They had no idea what this was going to turn into. And right. they were, were just passing 32,000 people to join the community. Nice. And 2,000 more people are joining every quarter right now. So it's yeah, that's great advice. And I think applicable to just about everybody in, you know, in everything we might do as a as a human. And endeavor to accomplish something yeah so you know anything you're excited about the future anything you know a lot of people you know drop a lot of different technology and buzzwords and terms that they're what are you excited about if you're looking ahead and and that's something i think also we get asked by people earlier like you know should i specialize in a certain area a little bit of a different oh, question man. but I, my, my the reason i was combining those is people sometimes think if i could just see ahead and become mm -hmm. really good at x then later, five years later, I look like a genius, you know? So what are you excited about? Right. I'm excited about, we're seeing a lot of application of existing or advanced technology in the IT side, but then expertly applied to industrial problems, right? So I, I, the easiest one is we're seeing cloud, right? 
we're seeing virtualization. You know, Siemens just put out their virtual PLC. We're seeing these inroads to where the community's going, wait, if we take a step back and look at what we're trying to accomplish, a lot of these are solved problems, but you can't just copy and paste from IT or SaaS or enterprise, whatever, over to OT, but the willingness is there to do it, right? And either it's market drivers, we have less people, we have to do more just in time, whether it's security, right? AI is a crazy buzzword right now, generative AI. The community is willing to at least experiment. Where before, and you probably you know, echo this, is they were so rigid. It's like, no, we ran the plant 30 years this way. Why would we ever change? Yeah, that was so difficult to fight against. So that's what I'm excited about is now we can be creative. As long as we're, again, uh, mission or service oriented, right? As long as it's to serve the operational mission and to make it more efficient, more safe or whatever, but we can be creative now. Hey, have you thought about this new technology? Um, microservices, like you were talking about, like, you know, what should they look into? Like uh, Kubernetes, Docker, all these crazy things that you hear about um, at, at one of the uh, S4 events. Uh, I think it was Duke Energy where they're like, yeah, we're doing a lot of microservices and, and, and grids and grid deployments. And um, so that's the thing that excites me is any new buzzword you hear, like generative AI now, you feel like there's an opportunity to apply it to the industrial problem. Where before, just like you said, it would have been a non-starter. Now you can't do scanning, yes. right? Well, I, love that. I love yeah. that's where we ended up because that's a very optimistic yeah. note. Uh, yeah. And it answers my question directly, some things people could look into, but it's also an optimistic note that we can we can affect more change when that's true and when there's more openness. And it's not a free for all, you had all the right cautions in there, which is like, hey, let's just go do whatever. No, but <laughs> if the mentality is more open to like, okay, well, how, how can we go about doing this? That is different than, you know, don't touch that box. Joe made it and it works. Joe doesn't work anymore, he retired by the way, but don't touch it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Ron, uh, I come to, this is sort of uh, my favorite part of the show. And uh, I think you know what's coming because I know you, you've you've uh, you've done your homework and know what's coming. The the uh, the Pavot questionnaire. So I'm borrowing it from uh, the Inside the Actors Studio television show that ran for many many years or was hosted for many many years. It may still be running, but the longtime host James Lipton has passed. Mm -hmm. But he always ended his show with all the famous actors and actresses with the same ten questions that he borrowed from a French show before that. Hence the Pivot questionnaire. I don't know what that show is about, but I think this thing's been in play for many decades. If you're up for it, I'll, I'll ask yeah. you the exact same 10 questions. Absolutely, I'm ready. Okay, what is your favorite word? All right, so I'm a nerd. Uh, it's tachyon. Uh, tachyon is a hypothetical particle that travels faster than the speed of light. And just how wild that concept is, and people say it's impossible, and I love that, that concept. What is your least favorite word? Oh, I've been hearing it a lot, but it's it's like a, a desperation, you know, like this this concept that you're in a spot where you're helpless and you're just desperate to attain something. And 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 for me and and for my loved ones in the community, I, I you never want to hear that word. What turns you on, either creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? The the idea of uh, we didn't we didn't talk about it a little bit, but I was a foster parent as well, but. It's it's the long term growth of something that's not yourself. So it's that it's that tension between um, I'm investing in something and I know that I'm not going to see the results of this. And 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 although that could be frustrating, I, I'm starting to see that that is where I get my most fulfillment out of is knowing that I'm doing something like that. And, and so yeah, that. 
that idea. And for me, it's it's my children and and being a foster parent, et cetera. But I think it's important that we all find something like that. What turns you off? <laughs> I was I was thinking about this too. It's it's the it's the idea that you can't do something because of resources or access. I, I like I said, I I grew up uh, you know kind of as a poor kid and, and and you know and and I think that idea of if you're creative or if you want to accomplish something, there shouldn't be barriers in the way like access to resources or money or knowledge. Like you should just be able to go do that. So that that really like gives me the heebie-jeebies, especially in our community. They say, well, no, you can't do that. It's like, well, no, why? Like it's so that that really, yeah, that's a turnoff. <laughs> what is your favorite curse word? Oh man, asshole. Asshole's a good one. It's so universal. You can be an asshole. You can act like an. I don't know. It's it's, and it's so visceral. Like you know, like you know what I'm saying, and it's a. Oh yeah, no, it's great. Love it. <laughs> what sound or noise do you love? Like a quiet night, kind of cold, and just the 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 sound of cold silence. Like because I because I like stars and astronomy. You go out like on a winter night, and if you're away from the hustle and bustle of a city. Silence in that context has a sound, and it's amazing. And I encourage everyone to go try to find that at some point. <laughs> what sound or noise do you hate? Right now, my dogs will not stop barking. I don't know what it is, uh, you know, because we live on a farm, and they just bark a bark a bark. So I'm 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 trying to figure out what weird internal thing that's striking me. Like you know, is it like we're in danger or like? But man, that one's really on my nerves for some reason right now. <laughs> What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Well, I I feel like the astrophysics thing is a throwaway. Because um, I was a foster parent, the therapy or the uh, mentorship side for folks that have experienced trauma. Now, you would say that that's like a psychology or a therapist route. I found that to be engaging and fulfilling in a way that I wasn't expecting. So maybe I, I'd, be, I'd be doing that instead of cyber. Yeah. What profession would you not like to do? I don't know. I don't think I would have been a good stonemason. <laughs> so, uh, you know, talk about hard, unappreciated work, right? You know, anything in construction or that. So may maybe that's something I wouldn't have gravitated or not liked to do at this stage in the game. <laughs> and if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? This one, uh, I thought about this one a lot. It's uh, It's almost this weird validation of, hey, you gave more then you probably were capable of giving, right? Like that that idea that not only did you engage, but man, you gave a lot more than what was expected or what was even possible. And man, that would be a great thing to hear at the end. Well, I'm just wrapping up with Ron Fabella, industrial security champion for sure, and field CTO at Zona, and a longtime multi-decade contributor to our space, veteran. Thank you for your service to our country. And thank you for the service in general that you're still doing in the cybersecurity capacity. We all benefit from that. And our modern connected society, we need more more of you, not less. So thank you for all of that. And likewise, thank you so much. And I really appreciate the time. Take care. Be well, Ron. You too.